Hello, welcome to Unofficial Partner. I'm Richard Gillis. This week we're talking politics with Tracy Crouch MP, the former UK sports minister. I wouldn't be opposed to taking competitive football out of the FA for women's football. We met Tracy at the Playbook's new office in Farringdon, so thanks to them for hosting us. The Unofficial Partner podcast is now enjoyed by thousands of people from across the sports business every single week of the year. For any advertising inquiries, please contact Sean via the site or directly on his email, sean at unofficialpartner.co.uk. He'll give you all the details you need. Here's Tracy Crouch. Tracy Crouch, MP, thank you very much for joining us. It's on a pleasure. the Unofficial Partner podcast. We've got lots to talk about, lots of important stuff, obviously former sports minister, but the most important is Tottenham Hotspur. You're a Spurs fan. Sean was a... He'll tell you he cycled now to Madrid for the Champions League final. He was. He, but where are you on the Poch-Mourinho debate? I was never really a massive Poch fan. Um, he obviously did great things for the club. I appreciate that, but he'd lost the confidence of the dressing room, quite clearly. I was in Madrid as well. I didn't cycle there. Um, Did you see Sean? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, but it a um, completely different bit of the stadium. The, yeah, I suspect he was. Um, but the, um, you know, I don't think he should have started Kane in Madrid. Um, still stand by that. Despite the fact that I love Harry, he, was, he wasn't fit. Um, but, you know, Mourinho, I don't know. Mourinho has always had mixed blessings when it comes to players he doesn't really like to start young players and I think with Troy Parrott on the bench every week it's hard to see when you want a striker out there why he's doing that he better be good Troy Parrott there's a lot of people talking him up isn't there? he's only a young fellow and I, you know I, I'm a sort of I'm not sure my understanding is that it's about his mental attitude rather than what he can do on the pitch and you know clearly Mourinho has a duty of care and responsibility to his players as well but I was there for the Wolves game and it was just dire um, and you know when you pay a lot of money every season for your ticket I don't mind watching Tottenham lose but I want to see them play well at the same time that's when I get frustrated is when they lose and they've been rubbish so what, what, what have you got against Poch then? I just, just, just to finish off on this, because it's interesting. I, he was he played well. We got There was success, sort of. I don't know. I just sometimes I didn't understand his tactics. I mean, I'm not saying that I hated him at all. You know, I wasn't sort of kind of in that category, <laughs> but I also wasn't disappointed or sad to see him go. Um, I just think that his time had come. You know, and I met him and he was a very nice man. But um, I just think that... Uh, he'd lost dressing room and I think it happened actually quite a while before he went and I just think it was all masked people covered it up for a little while Uh, some of those tactics were confusing Um, but hey you know what do I know I'm just a long-suffering fan (laughs) (laughs) what the sports minister job so um what is it? What, do, where, where, what happens on the first day? Just to just sort of unpick it for us. Well, it's not just sport, actually. I mean, it's always just categorised as sports minister's role, but there's gambling, there's lotteries. Um, when I first started, I had tourism and heritage in the brief. I also had responsibility for um, ceremony events like real, royal funerals. Um, I had the royal parks in the brief. So it's always much wider than just sport, but it's always just called the sports minister. Um, it is... Uh, the best job in government. Um, it's also quite a challenging job. It's not all fun and games. There's a lot of fun in it. Don't get me wrong, but there's also a lot around uh, 
um, the regulatory side of things, um, having that relationship with funding bodies that then go and fund other parts of our sporting environment, like Sport England and UK Sport. Um, it's, it's actually quite a lot of pressure to get things right sometimes. Um, there's also one of the challenges is that there are a lot of people elsewhere in government who think that they can do the sports minister's job. Mm. Um, and so you do end up having you know, significant arguments and rows with people, um, sometimes people much higher up the food chain than you. Um, who, who are the big sports fans or advocates uh, in government at your point? Well, um, George Osborne was always really useful, actually, in terms of sport, because he understood the return on investment for sports. So to have a chancellor that understood that if you put a pound into um, some sort of sporting event or occasion, that you would get an economic boost from it, that was always really helpful. There were some people that um, had uh, their views on a particular issue within sport, despite not having any understanding of sports. So, for example, I got uh, embroiled in the safe standing debate. I was always wanting to open up and have a proper full-scale review of whether or not we should um, look at safe standing. Um, But the Prime Minister at the time, Theresa May, had had very close contact with Hillsborough families um, and was not amenable at all to us having any debate on um, safe standing. I got all the blame for that, um, despite the fact that my position um, was very different to what the government's position was, and actually got trolled quite hideously from people um, who care about the issue of safe standing. Um, so you can have it both ways, really. Um, when you have to do something in sport, you have to engage with other departments uh, a lot. So you can be using sport, for example, from an intervention perspective, tackling knife and gang crime, mm. working very closely with the Home Office. Annoyingly, school sport is not in the sports minister's brief. So every time you know a school um, does something or bad, usually with their school sport, then it's the sports minister gets the blame, despite the fact that you have no responsibility for it. Um, and physical activity uh, is actually run by the Department of Health. So getting people active, it, it, you know, from a health perspective, is also not the sports minister's role. So it's quite sort of. Dis- I guess, disparate in many respects. So there's a, the, those big subjects like, you know, school sport, kids, health, they're the things that the Minister for Health and Education will put there, they will want to be in the front, you know, coming to it from a sort of thick of it type thing. I'm imagining lots of people wanting to be at the front of the good stuff and allowing the sports minister to take the flak. Yeah, that quite often happens. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, that really does. Um, the, I mean, the job of the sports minister is to try and get people active, make sure that we have high levels of participation in sport, and yet the budget for a lot of that is held within a different department or different departments, two departments. So you know as sports minister that if you get kids engaged in sport at a very early age, then it's a habit that they're going to form for the rest of their lives. Unfortunately, the bit that the sports minister is responsible for is the bit outside of school and yet your entire experience of sport is going to be formed by how good your PE teacher is or not Um, and so there's sort of kind of like a Venn diagram of responsibility of yes you get your kids interested in school that's the education minister's responsibility and if they are interested enough then they will go into sports clubs outside of school and then that becomes my responsibility became my responsibility um but it's having that smooth transfer um across and that's where it 
fell down. When, I, when David Cameron rang me to appoint me in 2015, I said to him, first thing I said was, can I have school sport? And he said, no. Um, and I said, well, I've already failed then. Because actually, if you, if you don't get children active in school, you won't keep them beyond school. Is it, in terms of the power of the sports minister, does it have power, do you think? When you look back at your time, given what you're saying about the big sort of dogs of the, the, around the cabinet table will look at sport and see that see it's shiny as sometimes it will they'll jump in front of a bid or they'll front they'll they'll want to front a campaign what what was what have you learned about how power works well <laughs> it depends on who's sat around the table to be honest with you um i think some people do understand it and some people don't some people do use it um, for their own means and other people recognize that you know in and of itself it is quite a powerful tool um uh it's i always find it really frustrating when people when politicians pretend to be interested in sport or a sport or a club you know when they're not i i cameron and aston villa exactly i mean i'm no doubt that he's an aston villa fan but not perhaps in the way that others would consider themselves fans aston villa is my understanding is the closest club to eton which is why i think prince william is a Villa fan as well um so that's fine that's great but just don't pretend you know who's playing you know left back this weekend because you know you will be caught cropper um and so um I I I my advice to anyone going in you know into politics who's interested in who is interested in becoming involved in sports policies just don't pretend to be interested in a sport that you're not um because you know it will be exposed because you've got that dreaded moment where you are announced and then you, at a press conference, people will start asking you very sport, specific sports quiz questions. Quiz questions. Yeah, I know. I mean, fortunately, I'm so rubbish at quiz questions <laughs> that I, I, you know, for me, I, I, I'm the last person you want to pick on any team. Um, and whenever I've been in any quiz, which I do not volunteer myself for quizzes, I hate that moment where we go down, right, sports category, and everyone looks at me as if I'm about <laughs> to know the answer to some, you know, crazy deed. I'm like, I just don't have that kind of brain. Um, so thankfully, I've, I've never fallen foul of the sports quiz, and nor am I going to today, just so no, you no, know. No, 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 okay, I'll, no, we're not, we won't go there. End Lo- of podcast. <laughs> what's, the, what's the lobbying process? So, again, that's something a lot of people listening will be, Working for PR agencies or comms in you know in various parts of the the, the sports world, um, and there's always an assumption that that process is happening. What what does it look like from when you're on the other side of the table? Who who is coming towards you, and what are they asking for, and do they ever get anything? Yeah, well, yeah. Sometimes I mean, I had a, an open door policy in terms of people coming to see me. I had a very long list of stakeholders, and I was always really pleased to see them um, because. Uh, in part, I was a lobbyist before I became an MP. And I think it is wrong for politicians to assume that they know everything. And actually, they don't. <laughs> Shock. <laughs> Hold the front page. Um, and, uh, you know, so for, so for me, it was a case of, OK, if you've got a specific issue that you want to come and talk to me about, come and talk to me about it. Uh, again, it wasn't always my responsibility um there's some quite technical issues around tax for example for amateur sports clubs now i have nothing to do with that but i could have an understanding of the problem and then say right these are the people that you need to go and talk to in the treasury um so i'm always very happy to talk to people about particular issues uh and and then take those forward if need be do you think the image of lobbying 
in that in government is is a fair one because lots of people assume that deals are being done and it's all behind the scenes. Yeah, well, that's the wrong assumption because it doesn't work like that. But there are. Um, uh, I do think it's important to have that stakeholder engagement however you wish to call it um, and you know sometimes you need that understanding and, and and it's quite easy to leave things off so for example if you take the Premier League Premier League is one of our top exports from this country it's really important that the Premier League talk to the business department so they get a proper understanding of why things like intellectual property is incredibly important um, now I'm not going to pretend I even begin to know some of the intellectual property kind of technicalities um, but I do appreciate that it is important to the Premier League and therefore they have to have those right relationships with government beyond the sports minister. So you're guiding them towards other bits of government? Yeah, the right bits of government because government's huge I mean, it's so unwieldy it touches every single part of our life you know export is very different department to some of the issues around IP um, and you know things like a live issue right now is around you know IP data theft people that are going into football clubs like Tottenham and live streaming um, games back to other countries that are then formulating um, gambling calculations um, you know betting odds that's theft and that's something that has to be dealt with you know really seriously if we're going to have any integrity in some of the betting systems that we have here that the, that the Premier League has a proper formal link with so you know those are the sort of conversations that are happening um, now there's no you know backhanders or anything that people think is happening it's just having a proper grown-up conversation about the important issues so betting is an obvious place to jump into there because obviously you know people will know you and you resigned over um fixed odds betting terminals um the detail of that is quite interesting so it's 100 quid down to two quid was that right yes that was the that was the issue yeah um and you mentioned the premier league what do you think that they have a case to answer in terms of the the way in which it has they have normalized betting for football in around football for the last sort of 15 20 years i'm not sure it's just the premier league it's not league. just the premier league I mean, but they you are know, the, as you say they're a very huge well football huge is the number one bet on sport so more than horse racing um, and actually i think that football itself takes an interesting kind of position on it it's very mixed in different parts of football um, you can't assume that um, the, the 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 view of someone like the FA is the view is exactly the same view of that of the Premier League or indeed individual clubs within the Premier League or lower down the the, the football pyramid. So I think it's really careful. We have to be really careful that we yeah. just don't sort of kind of tarnish everyone with the same brush. Um, I think it is important that we look at the relationship between um, betting um, and sport. Um, but I also think that you have to have an understanding which I did when I was dealing with the whole gambling issue, uh, that what, what gambling pays for in terms of its sponsorship, its advertising, actually does get reinvested back into the sport. Mm -hmm. um, so I had very open conversations with people uh, who were the families of addicts who'd taken their lives, for example, or uh, addicts who were in recovery who want a blanket ban on advertising and who knows that may well be where the um, uh, where the, the gambling review ends up but I had to explain that 
advertising revenue pays for the broadcasting of sport on TV, which in turn pays for us to be able to see it, which means that kids like Sean's can then sort of kind of get involved in that sport. It's, it's a, there's an ecosystem. Now, whether or not there's been an imbalance now in that ecosystem is something that I think we have to address. Um, but what we do... I. I don't know. That's what I think the, the review will look at. Do you think a ban were? Are you in favour of a ban? Or? I, I genuinely have an open mind about it. I worry that we're seeing too much gambling. Um, just actually, not just on TV, but around football. You know, that when you go to Tottenham Hotspur, I still call it White Hart Lane. Uh, when you go to Tottenham Hotspur, you see the, um, William Hill, who's the proverb partner of, of Spurs, go around the, the perimeter of the ground. Um, and actually, you know, so you, you, you see that uh, on a regular basis. Um, now, is that right? I don't know. When I get a tweet from Tottenham, it's promoted by William Hill. So I'm seeing it on my Twitter f- feed as well. Um, clearly, that is enabling Tottenham to, you know, make some money, which is probably at some point in its journey being reinvested back into its brilliant community work that it's doing in Haringey, um, the academy work and so on. So, you know, I, it's, it's one of those things where you just begin to have a kind of a, a mixed view about it. Is there a, um, the argument from the sponsorship industry, but also the betting industry, is that you can see us, we're visible, the bad guys are dark and invisible and they are, you're just people will still bet and you will drive them into an unregulated market for... for Well, it's not going to be unregulated. So it's not unregulated. Um, Online gambling regulation is pretty much, you know, the same um, as... Oh, there there are sort of kind of some points of difference. Stakes, for example. So at the moment, unlike in a fixed old betting terminal, you can now only stake £2. You can stake whatever you like on the same game online. That may well change as part of the gambling review, um, but there's there is a um, there's a split. It's quite an amusing split between retail bookmakers, so those that we see on our high streets, and the online industry, and they compete against each other. So I remember all the retail bookmakers coming in to see me, all the chief executives saying, "Oh, yeah, there's far too much advertising on TV," knowing full well that they've got thousands of shops on the high street that do all their advertising for them. So it wasn't about them advertising; it was about the online lot that are advertising, and the online lot will be like well they've got advert on every high street so why can't we have adverts you know on the tv and so on so the issue is not necessarily about advertising per se it's about the normalization of gambling in society and um i think you know we're seeing increasing issues around um computer games having gambling devices within them loot boxes and skins um people you know shows Quiz show, well, <laughs> quiz shows. Not, I, I, look, gambling has existed since the year dot. I mean, I used to play marbles in the. the well, you could, I mean, you I, know. I, 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 when I was on the, I was on the way, I was thinking about the national lottery because that, yeah, you know, it's obviously, gambling. that has normalised gambling. It gets a good press because people. The story is that it leads to Olympic success and good yeah. causes. Is that a story that is true? Do you think you agree with that? Or is that, is, is national, does the National Lottery get an unreasonably good press? No, it doesn't. I, I, I mean, I think the National Lottery is gambling, and I think it is, um, it's recognised as gambling. question is, should we be pay, playing it at 16? 
And I think that is a perfectly reasonable question to be asking. If you can't go into a bookmaker till you're 18, then why should you be able to buy a lottery ticket at 16? I think that is a very, very reasonable question to ask. Um, But then, once you ask that question, you then start asking about seaside arcades. From Brighton, you Mm -hmm. know, many a time I've been down onto Brighton Pier and put two peas in the machines down there. Um, You know, there's that's gambling. Putting your pound or whatever it is these days into the grabber you know that's gambling there is there is an odds on your on the grabbers um that are related to the cost of the toy that is in there so you know if textile prices are going up then the you know the odds around you winning the kermit the frog or whatever it is did you see did you change. see the uh, did you see that they've got toilet rolls in the grabber now <laughs> that's is that true. true? It's true. It's fantastic. Is it true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you can play for and get and win a toilet roll. Oh my <laughs> word! And as I, get, I guess as they get more sort of kind of you know remote, the, the odds will change. <laughs> they become more valuable. Um, okay, I didn't plan this, but from toilet rolls to coronavirus. <laughs> so this is almost like you know seamless. But um, this morning I was I was listening to Radio Four. George Osborne, former Chancellor, talking about. Um, the help that governments can provide. And he's saying that, okay, we've got a budget this week and there is a, quite often, budgets and politicians talk about long-term policies and strategies and things. And this is something, this challenge we've got now is immediate. How do we help people this week, next week? Sport and the sports market and event business is in peril, I would suggest. There's, you know, yesterday Indian Wells tennis tournament in the states got cancelled we're seeing question marks about the euros and olympics and champions league and premier league matches behind grand prix being behind closed doors etc what do you think what can government do to help well look this is a huge problem i i don't have the intel the level of intel um that the ministers will have obviously i'm on the outside now um, public health is paramount. It's got to be the first and foremost consideration. If I was sat around the table, I think I'd also be conscious of the economic impact um, on sport as a business. Now, our club, Tottenham, will be fine. Okay, There are other clubs we know um, that don't need to be mentioned around the pyramid that rely on their gate. They rely on people coming through that gate and buying a beer. And if they don't, then... You know, they can't play their players. That is my worry, is that are we going to see a flyby of football or rugby? You know, again, you've got championship clubs in in rugby who don't have the same level of income as premiership clubs who could suddenly disappear. Now, that's not a reason to not do it. As I say, public health has to be absolutely the first and foremost consideration. But the impact could be great in terms of sport. You know, the history of an entire club suddenly wiped away because they go bankrupt. And Mm. we have rules around, um, you know, the financial aspects of of football clubs. We saw Bury, you know, obviously fall foul of that. And, and, you know, we know that there are other clubs out there that are like that. They could, I mean, so one of the questions is, is just letting people off tax for a bit. As in, you know, just stopping them having to pay tax, and or just a way. It's very hard, actually, isn't it, for governments to, because we're talking about small and medium-sized enterprises here, a lot of the time. Yeah, very hard to actually 
practically help them and give you can't just who do you give money to if you're giving some to some clubs is it is that is that is that is it we reaching the limits of what government can do yeah I, and also we're talking about lots of different sports yeah. i mean the thing is is that we all automatically jump to football because we care about football but there are lots of different sporting events that are happening out there where the finances are significantly different and actually a championships in I don't know, basketball or netball or ice hockey, you know, it could be the difference between that sport continuing to exist. And I think that's where we just have to be, you know, conscious that going down the route of um, playing behind closed doors, you know, what does that mean in terms of the economic impact on that sport? Um, Let's talk about Olympics then. Uh, Or just, just, actually not Olympics, but more that sort of the, the national governing bodies. And we're in the middle of a running boom at the moment. Park Run has created this fantastic sort of Saturday morning phenomenon. Um, why do we need national governing bodies if, if Park Runs and CrossFits and are out there creating participation? Well, because first of all, there's, I think, about 42 or 46 different national governing bodies for the sports that you know, we fund in this country. Um, but it's, you know, running is very important, but each governing body has to adhere to various governance codes and safeguarding. So it's fine saying people are doing part run. That's fantastic. Part run, as it happens, do have good governance in place. Um, but, you know, it is a case of making sure that there are, you know, safeguarding issues around um, child protection and um, you know, long-term kind of things around injuries and so on. So there's a lot of different things behind a national governing body. Um, now, whether or not we need that many national governing bodies is something that I think will be addressed at some point. There's always concerns around future funding for sport. Um, there are a lot of sports that fall into the same bracket of a sort of kind of or a generic issue of sport do they all need their own admin all need their own legal team all need their own finance team that's i guess a debate for the future um but ngbs are hugely important in terms of you know developing the future direction of a sport what about the um the way in which we allocate money was it a question in terms of oh god do you think gold medals at olympics that debate about whether or not they're going a bit out of fashion, is it something that we really should be spending money on to develop the elite and we should really actually be going back to the start of this conversation and say, right, okay, let's get the money into schools. And do, you, do you believe that link or believe in that link between the elite, what we see on television and then what we do? Well, they're not the same funding pots. So funding Olympic sport is not taking money away from school sport. Um, Olympic sport is predominantly lottery funding lottery can't be used for sort of kind of statutory issues so that's it that's taxpayers money um or indeed uh sugary drinks money as it is going into yeah. <laughs> school sport it's hypothecated so you know that we're not funding the same out the same pots right. um and i i'm always slightly amused by when people come back and say well should we be funding all this olympic sport bearing in mind that you know wasn't too long ago that people were criticizing us for not being very good at olympic sport uh, and obviously the national lottery was established as part of that investment into olympic sport and we do have a boom in participation around these major events and the good thing about the olympics is there's a 
equal coverage of both men's and women's sports you know it does actually showcase different sports to different people you know we get a lot of football and a lot of rugby on the tv we don't Mm -hmm. get much gymnastics so all of a sudden you do get people seeing different sports and inspiring them this year we're going to have you know massive new sports like climbing um and skateboarding which will again encourage a whole lot of you know different people to get involved in a different type of sport um and i think that's a good thing well um the, the, let's look at the television landscape for a minute because you mentioned there about you know we're, we're looking at the profile of the sport and it's and, and how we respond to it um six nations obviously of the moment people are saying oh it's going to go on to pay television um i don't want to get into the sort of crown jewels conversation (laughs) (laughs) but ironically that was one of the issues that doesn't fall into the sports minister's brief in some bizarre way it actually falls into the media minister's brief so the crown jewels was something that i never had to take a decision on thank goodness because i'd have everything on tv (laughs) otherwise yeah we'll shove it all in (laughs) what uh, what do you think what what's the you know, you've rugby, Six Nations, obviously we're in the middle of it at the moment and it, it is a big national moment on uh, free-to-air television and has been for forever. Um, would you be happy to see it go on Sky? Well, look, it's a Cat B um, sport on, on the Crown Jewels list, so that means that it can go behind the paywall, but it has to have extended highlights on terrestrial TV. Um, so there's nothing that stops it under the Crown Jewels list at the moment from doing that. My preference is that it stays on um, free-to-air TV. I mean, I think it is really important that it does that. It gets people involved. Um, and you know, this has been a fun Six Nations. It's been, I think, closer Six Nations than previous. Um, and unfortunately, it's obviously going to be disrupted towards the end. But my my own view, even though I do, um, I actually have BT with a Sky Sports top up. Even though personally I can watch it, I would still prefer to see it on free to air because I think that's right for everyone. Do you think it's inevitable when you've got sort of venture capital companies coming in and allying with governing bodies that that it has to go? Well, you know, a, a part of it will go to free to wear, uh, to, to pay TV. Sport is a business. Governing bodies are part of that business. Governing bodies have really strict rules about, you know, in terms of how much they should be investing in term participation and growing the game. How do they do that if they're, you know, not getting a significant uplift in lottery money? They have to forge those partnerships, and those partnerships are with broadcasting companies. So if a broadcaster comes in and it gives more money by putting it behind Sky, um, then... I completely understand them doing that. The irony is that by putting it behind a paywall probably means that fewer people are going to watch it, which means that you then don't necessarily achieve what you're trying to do in the growth of the game. So that's a judgment that they have to make. Cricket, I think, has done a good thing in terms of having a bit of a balance in in its mix of broadcasting. Um, and you could argue whether or not it's got the right bits of um, the game on free-to-air, but, uh, versus behind the paywall. But, you know, it's got to have that conversation, not just with the bro- broadcasters, but with itself. You know, what mm. does its future look like? Um, and so, you know, these are ongoing kind of discussions that governing bodies have. Broadcasting landscape is changing on such 
you know, a, a regular basis at a phenomenal speed. And whether or not the deals that are being done now for, you know, the next couple of years are going to be relevant by the time they've actually finished that, who knows? You know, lots of youngsters, I need some kids then, because I'm in my 40s and I feel old. <laughs> you know, a lot of young adults are watching their sport in a very different way, you know, live streaming through Facebook or Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. You know, this is, um, it, this is the future. And I think this is the challenge that we have now with sport, trying to decide what it's going to do for the future. Um, Six Nations and cricket, we've got the 100 coming up this, this summer. The women's game in both of those examples is quite, you know, it's a really interesting moment. Um, and there's lots of good things happening. There's lots of noise, lots of smoke and lots, you know, versus the perception of reality, etc. So I'm just trying to work through. I've, one of the things, I'll start this bit by you, you, your, you did a very good interview with uh, Simon Monday and BBC and what I didn't realise is that you got banned from playing for the men's MPs yeah. football team. <laughs> I did. I mean, it was because, a long... you, because it was run by the FA. Yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago. It was when I first got elected in 2010. And um, I had actually, I, I'd been a researcher back in the mid-90s and the, um, the MPs team was just pretty much organised by themselves. And I was allowed to play as a researcher for the MPs team. So I'd played at Chelsea, I'd played at Carrow Road, I'd played at the old Wembley um, and all sorts of things. So I'd played football with a whole bunch of MPs as a researcher. And then I get elected as an MP and I'm banned because it's run by the FA, and the FA have mi- you know, rules about um, mixed football over a certain age. It was 13 back then. I think it's now 18 now. But even so, I'm over both those ages. Um, and so I wasn't allowed to play. Now, we've set up our own women's football team now. Um, so at least I get to play football, but not as regularly as the men's parliamentary team do. But we're there. We're playing it. What... Um what would you like to see happen? So we're here we are, 2020. Again, loads of good news, genuine good news about the sponsorship market, people sponsoring sport, big companies coming in, media covering it, audiences, attendances, all of this is great. Um, what do you want to happen? What, do you, what, what needs to happen? Well, it's about an, a level playing field, I think, is the thing. I mean, I think uh, I often get asked by schoolgirls who send in emails saying, you know, about equality in sports. And I genuinely think that we are so much further forward than we were when I, when I was a schoolgirl. If I want to play football now as a girl, I can. There may still, of course, be barriers and challenges, but I can. Whereas when I was high school, I was not allowed to play football. And it was as simple as that. So I think we have more of an equal opportunity um, uh, as women and girls to play sport. Now, whether or not there's a level playing field um, is something that I th- still think there's a lot of debate about. Um, but in terms of sponsorship, it's good to see that there are sponsors that are coming forward um, in, in women's sport, but also that actually national governing bodies are themselves taking sponsorship very seriously. So, you know, again, it wasn't that long ago that... England women cricket team or rugby team had a different sponsor to the men's and now they have the same sponsor and I think that's a much better place to be um broadcasting you know there's more women's sport on tv than there ever was before and actually I think people like Barbara Slater at the BBC and I think BT Sport uh, and indeed Sky with Netball have you know played a really significant role in that um I think um again we could always have more 
Um, couldn't, but then I frankly, I'd like to see more sport on TV. So um, I, to, for me, it doesn't matter. I think that we are getting to a point now where um, we could start having the debate about it just being sport. Um, <laughs> I think people who like sport will watch and read sport. I, it doesn't matter whether or not it is a woman or a man playing it. Um, the counter to that, a little bit, is... I, I was at the, the, it was whether or not you need a separate governing body, whether or not the potential of women's football, women's rugby, is best fit under the FA, or it should have, like the WTA in tennis, dedicated governing body. What do you think about that? So in terms of football, I think it's right to be integrated into the Football Association. I don't think there should be a separation. Um, that from a governance perspective. Now, whether or not you actually take the WSL out, out of the FA and put mm. it into the Premier League is a different matter. So I think you, you, you've got to separate in your mind and your understanding of sport, governance and competition. Um, and I think that, you know, we've got that in men's football. The FA does not run the competition side for Premier League Championship EFL. Um, so uh, why should the FA run Women's Super League? And I think that's, you know, that's that's the conversation that I believe is happening now. I wouldn't be opposed to taking competitive football out of the FA for women's football. That's interesting. So you think that's, a, that's happening, those conversations are happening? At the yeah, moment? my understanding they've been happening for a little while. I think that, well, I was going to say, I think there's been public comment on it. I hope so. Otherwise, I've just broken a whole new story. <laughs> um, but um, there's, you know, there's certainly, um, you know, there's been discussion about that. So there is a difference between a governing body's governance arrangements of any sport to the com- competition side of things. And it has to be sort of equal. Is there a sort of political philosophy angle? You're a Tory, you're happy that, that you would prefer the private sector to play a greater role in that? creating competition at that market? I've never thought about it. I've never thought about it in those terms. Actually, one of the glorious things about being sports minister is it's usually sort of kind of the most non-partisan aspect um, of, of government. You know, people are just there in terms of making it run efficiently, make sure you get the funding to the right places and so on. So never really thought about it in those terms. Are there any ever, ever any sort of... Um, People questioning, for example, Sport England gets government money. This girl can, a fantastic, brilliant campaign. It's lottery money. That's lottery money. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's lottery money that required government sign-off because it was an extension to what it was that they had. And the Lottery Act is quite specific about it. It's a particular section for additional funding for campaigns like that. But it is lottery funded. Um, the only bit that government funds is the administration side of um, sports. So um, we provided funding for Sport England and for UK Sport. Um, and then the rest is... Um, the, the, the sort of kind of the bit that's distributed is lottery. Um, off the field, so you know that the, the the debate around women's sport obviously focuses on on um, participation, but also what we watch on telly. What about on the in the sort of boardrooms of sport? What's the what's it like when you sit you go into those rooms? Still presumably very male dominated. Well, it is, but. Um, there are also some amazing women, you know, around the board table. Our own club, Tottenham, yep. has Donna, Donna Cullen. She's phenomenal, 
practically built the stadium um, herself. You can see a lot of the feminine touches actually in that stadium. Um, but um, you know, you, you want to see more women uh, around board tables, but you also want to know that you've got the right women around those tables. And we need to make sure that we're encouraging um, more women into all levels of governance. Um, and that's not just in sport, that's beyond sport as well. Um, and there are a lot of things that are happening out there. It's, that's going to take a bit of time, to be honest with you, because I think that in the past, people have been so excluded that it is a case of bringing people through who might not have the confidence to sit around the table and say, oi, Daniel, no. Um, you know, so, um, but there are people out there, and they are coming through. And in terms of just the just to head us off to the end of this interview, what's, what's the future for you? Because you're an MP, you're not sports minister anymore. What, what, what are you going to do? Well, being an MP is quite a busy job. <laughs> um, in fact, it's an extremely busy job. When you're a minister, when you become a minister, you're still an MP as well. Um, and you learn um, how to compact things into a, a slightly longer day. You know, as, as minister, I was at my parliamentary desk doing MP work um, for about seven o'clock in the morning, uh, do a couple of hours MP stuff, um, go to um, the, to the department. The, my parliamentary stuff would come in and you know to kind of get on with the rest of the parliamentary work. Um, I'd be in the department for pretty much most of the day and then come back in the evening about five o'clock, six o'clock, and I'd be at my desk till ten. So you know you're still doing almost eight hours on each you know part of the job, but you learn to juggle it and you learn to cope with that. Um, at the moment, it is nice being an MP and not necessarily having those exceptionally long days, but also I've got a four-year-old and it means that I can go home and I can switch off um, and concentrate on being a mum for a bit. Um, he starts school in September. Uh, I was asked back in July if I would join the Cabinet doing the DCMS role, um, and I said I just want to take some time out, wait to get my son into primary school, once that happens, he'll start his own life and he's lost anyway to his social network. And, you know, so then I would, you know, look again and reconsider um, if I get offered the job again. What, um, we're, we're, we should say we're here at the Playbook um, offices in, uh, in Clerkenwell. They're new offices. Um, you're attached in some way to the Playbook? I am. For the last 12 months, I've been providing some consultancy advice uh, for the Playbook, a fantastic creative agency. Um, and I've been bringing some, you know, thinking in in terms of uh, that the comms side for some of their sports clients. And what, what does that mean? What, how does that work? Is that just, is that a, just a consulting role? Yeah, it's, just, it's a consultancy uh, role. It's something I've really enjoyed doing. I've been doing a podcast as well. Oh, I mean, I don't wish to... It? It's very difficult podcast. I love it. <laughs> it's extraordinarily <laughs> difficult. Um, uh, but I have to say, I really enjoy doing it. Um, not that I want other your listeners to go and listen to my podcast, but it is the Playbook podcast with Tracy Crouch. <laughs> I've had some really interesting um, people. Um, it's, it's been a more varied than sport. Um, so I did a podcast with Ian Hislop, for example, um, talking about why you never want to find yourself in private eye, um, as I have on a couple of occasions. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, it's been really good fun working with the playbook. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time. Thank I you. you're very busy. And uh, me and Sean will, might see you at the new White Hart Lane at some point. Yeah, I look forward to it. 